Let's face it. The reason why workplace comedies and dramas on TV and streaming are so popular is because they deal with a concept that every viewer can relate to. That the culture in a workplace is more often than not a source of conflict and concern. In real life, some people spend years in school finding a profession or job that they like, only to find that the price of that desired work is putting up with an unsupportive culture, and in many cases it becomes no longer worth it. And that's why, as the expression goes, many people don't so much quit their jobs as quit their managers. Today, I'm talking to someone who has the answers as to why this is so often the case and what we can do about it. Hello and welcome to Cool Time Life. I'm Steve Prentice. Each of our Cool Time Life podcasts focuses on a topic dealing with people, productivity, technology and work life, and each offers ideas and facts you need to know about to thrive in today's busy world. An index of our podcasts is available at cooltimelife.com. I'm here today with Drew Jones, Dr. Drew Jones, PhD. He is an anthropologist, former business school professor, a practicing management consultant and founding partner of Experient, a workplace culture and strategy consultancy. He's just released a new book entitled The Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. And he has some amazing insights into culture change, organic management and activity-based working. Some really great ideas here, wrapped up in an anthropological approach to work. So, Drew, welcome to the Cool Time Life podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. I think a lot of people, a lot of the world actually, has noticed an increase in polarization and individualization of people in the workplace. And we're both old enough to remember times when, you know, you had a work group, you had a workforce, and there was much more of perhaps a sense of cohesiveness or just simply collective destiny. Whereas now we've got people who are highly individualized in their expectations and their behaviors. This is largely thought to be brought on by social media and customized channels that everyone chooses for themselves. So as a start, Drew, what do you see with regards to the overall change in the workplace and the attitudes and expectations of individual workers in this so-called post-pandemic era? Well, you're getting right to the crux of why I wrote the book, to be honest with you. As an anthropologist, it's been frustrating for many, many years working with companies, teaching cases and quote-unquote culture change. And businesses are just really, really bad at culture. If you look at the data, we've had roughly 30% employee engagement for 60 plus years, 70% of corporate change programs fail, 80 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail, often because of poor culture fit. Companies spend over $2,000 on average per year per employee on culture programs, yet data show that around 70% of Participants in those programs don't believe in the cultural goals of their leaders, and 90% don't behave in ways that align with those cultural aspirations. So we're going about it all wrong. This is the premise of the book. And we're basically managing people and businesses against our cultural nature. And our cultural nature is more what you're suggesting, and that is culture is what anthropologist Joseph Heinrich in his book, The Secret of Our Success, refers to as our collective brain. And so at the core, culture is the human capability of observing, learning, sharing, and empathizing with other people in the process of adapting and surviving. So culture is what separates us from other higher primates. And it's this collective capacity for innovation. And so you're exactly right. And it's not just in the last 
40 years or so where we've gone off the rail when it comes to managing people, it really boils down to, in a way, the ideology of individualism that predominates in American culture generally. And the way culture change is attempted to be managed now is the company will get a survey, they'll determine what kind of culture type they have now, as if any organization can be within a typology of five culture types or whatever. And they'll set out on a goal of trying to move the needle from the culture they have now to the culture they want. But that just rarely works because the onus of change is put on employees to change their values, beliefs, and behaviors to reach whatever goal the CEO has next when they've probably been through three or four of these that didn't work previously. So the cynicism runs really high. And I see this everywhere I go. And there's another statistic that Paul Zak from Claremont University cites that in his research, only around 40% of employees are fully aware of the company's strategy. So you're dealing with this intractable situation where people are highly individualized to achieve just their own job security. And year over year, they're not engaged in really stimulating work. And so you end up with this mismatch between humans' culture, I don't say human nature, but our cultural nature, that we're cultural animals, and, and, and the way we're managed. So the challenge is if you can't, quote unquote, change culture the way it's typically tried, what can you do? And that's really the point of the book. And the idea is, the question I started with this project was, how can you evolve the culture in an organization without ever mentioning the word culture? That is, how do you create conditions where this collective brain process that we're so good at can develop naturally? And it comes down to you know, designing conditions and working arrangements that allow people to work more collectively around the goals of innovation and, and, and adaptation for the company. So, yes, I, I agree. We've become more individualized since the pandemic. The upside of that is we've been become more connected to our families, right? This the great domestication. So there has been this split between the work world and home life, which in many respects is healthy because you know we've been so separated from that for, for so long. But you're right. And so that really is the challenge, I think, is how do managers get out of the way and allow culture to evolve organically? And that really runs against you know, the specific prescriptions or examples that I cite in the book really run against management orthodoxy. So this is why it's such a challenging message. So I agree with what you're saying, but I think that our individualized working approach has really been there from the beginning, though it's probably getting more atomized over time. Yeah. We're seeing the classic dynamic of today's individuals who want to do things their own way versus managers need to control and oversee. And we're also seeing an enormous challenge around trust, specifically how managers cannot seem to trust employees to get their work done. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. it does seem also that certain senior leaders are picking up on the need to address this. And Satya Nadella of Microsoft always comes out as one of the highest profile leaders to practice a major culture change, especially comparing him to his two predecessors at Microsoft. So what do you observe about Nadella's approach? I cite him in the book and I cite him in many other articles that I've written that this can this can happen in a public company. A lot of the companies I focus in are private. They do things that shareholders might not really want. But Nadella has managed to do it. And it really does come down to trust and what I call unlocking employees inner innovator. 
because in, under the Steve Ballmer regime, it was a product-driven, sales-driven organization where each product group was really pitted against each other. And it was a competitive, proprietary, sort of fear-based environment. More than anything, what Nadella did was allow and encourage experimentation and innovation with the promise that you wouldn't be punished if you failed it. It's some effort at innovation. And it really, for him, was triggered by the book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, where she outlined the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And he really has cascaded that through the organization. And it's once again become a place where creative software developers want to work. You know, for many years, the talent decamped to Silicon Valley away from Seattle because Microsoft was sort of at odds with the open source cultural ethos of the software community in, in the Bay Area. But that's changed now and innovation is accepted. And as I tied into the evolutionary science part of this, you know, humans were wired to solve problems and collectively we have enormous power, whether it's the first hunting spear, the domestication of agriculture or, you know, antibiotics or airplanes. These were not solo endeavors. This was the output of groups of people syncing up in this collective brain that Joseph Heinrich talks about. So Nadella has released that. So this is where I say throughout the book that innovation or the opportunity to experiment and develop new things is as much an HR issue as it is a business growth issue, because this is what makes people thrive, is creating new value, trying new things, learning and growing. And when a whole organization can do that, then you have this turnaround from when Nadella inherited the company in 2015 to today. This is why I say you know, the second or third most valuable company in the world by market cap. So really, it's one of the clearest examples of a financial turnaround that really began as a cultural turnaround. And it started with this growth mindset and this acceptance of experimentation and innovation. And so really, he's the poster child for the model that I'm trying to advocate. Often when people talk about leadership uh, versus the workforce and these kinds of efforts to create a more democratic workforce or whatever, they tend often to forget or ignore a third component, which is or are the shareholders and the boards of directors and those personalities who may not actually want to align with this more democratic approach. All they want to do is maximize profit, minimize costs, and anyone who doesn't align with this gets fired. So, Drew, there's sort of a triangular relationship here, isn't there, that a triptych almost. Uh, do you observe that when people like Nadella establish themselves as role models for culture change, that there may be other leaders out there who may want to align with this and introduce it to their own companies? And they say, I want to do this here, but I've got a bunch of shareholders or investors who say, no, just simply drive profits. How would you address that kind of sword of Damocles that sits over leaders' heads? Well, again, that's really one of the motivations behind the book is that 15 companies that I talk about in the, in the book, each one is first, second or third in their industry financially. So it's a fallacy. It's a false choice that we're asked to make between empowering people on the one hand versus delivering results to shareholders on the other hand. This is really the trap that we're in. The fact is, is that companies that allow self-organization, allow decentralized decision-making, encourage innovation, and 
I don't want to say get out of the way because obviously in a large organization, there's complex management systems, but an approach to managing people that seems like chaos and people running around doing whatever they want actually drives not only financial results, but accountability. I'll give you an example. At Morningstar Tomatoes, the largest processor of tomato products in the country, it's a completely self-organizing company. They have no job titles. When you are hired, you find a project team that you want to work with. And when you start, and this is the kind of activating the collective brain dimension of this that is so important. When you start on a project team, you write what what they call a colleague letter of understanding, a clue. And it's an outline of what value you think you can bring to that team for the coming year. And it's supposed to be very detailed. But you actually write it to an individual person on the team so you can be held accountable. So what they do is every two months, the recipient of a clue posts the new hire's progress against their own stated objectives and deliverables that they've promised for everybody to see. So it's an intensely accountable environment. If you're not delivering, everybody knows it. But at the same time, they have latitude and decision-making and how they they self-organize. So it's matching this transparency and trust and self-organization with levels of accountability that you rarely see in a traditionally managed company. Oftentimes, you know, you've got the annual performance review, which we know people can kind of game, but peer-to-peer accountability is every day and you cannot hide. And so this is part of what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there's a certain way that organizations can innovate and create engaged employees that leads to stronger financial performance. And it's, I think, you know, I've taught in business school for many years and I can tell you from my colleagues that that's not what we teach over there at business school. We teach predictability. We teach you got to hit your guidance numbers and it's shareholder this, shareholder that. But but hopefully people like Nadella can set an example that then case studies develop over the years and uh, organic way of managing people becomes more a norm than it is now. That's a nice term, a, a more organic way of managing people. My thoughts as you were describing that were perhaps a newer generation of leaders who are just coming up now in their 20s or 30s who may be better able to embrace this as opposed to those who are in their 50s or 60s who were raised professionally on command and control approaches. So can we look at activity-based working and why do you think this is such an effective solution, especially for companies who are facing, let's say, the challenge of hybrid work? Well, this is one of the things that we do and it's really something that gets me excited because Activity-based working, it's not new. It began in the mid-90s, initiated by a Dutch consultancy called Veldhoen, which is a fabulous company. What I say in the book is the most important company that you've never heard of is Veldhoen. Activity-based working is the idea, again, going back to the 90s, that people should have choice over when and where they work. But there's a design element in it too, and it starts with this idea that not every employee in an organization necessarily needs a fixed desk or an office, including the CEO. So the idea of activity-based working is these environments, they're the most compelling visually and just initially when you see one, environments, work environments that you'll see, they're filled with multiple areas, zones for working, whether it's a library, a den, a cafe, private offices, hot desks, small meeting rooms, medium meeting rooms, whatever. So the idea is that 
you pick an area, a zone that matches the activity you're working on at the time. If you have a client call, you need a quiet room. If you've got a block of time when you want to just work in the open with some folks, you can. So the idea is in an activity-based environment, nobody has a fixed office. And this is where the transformation potential resides, including the CEO. Okay, now to back up, yes, because of the role, the importance of the role of CEO, they have access to private spaces before anybody else. So if you have a, a meeting or conference or whatever, they have access to that. But the idea is like a co-working environment in an, an activity-based office, everybody has a locker and you plug into a, an area that matches what you're working on at the time. One of those places could be at home. So there's several things here that are important. One is that senior leadership works in the same way and is accessible and co-works essentially with other people. So the great example I cite in the book is Macquarie Bank, the investment bank in Australia, adopted this in 2009, transformed their whole campus into activity-based working. The CEO embraced it. And so he had certain areas where he liked to work and he'd come in and sit in the cafe area and just plug in. And all of a sudden he was accessible. He was around. People could sit down and talk with him. And the chief designer there, Anthony Henry, talks about, he said, what started out as a workplace project became an organizational transformation project because it had this democratizing effect. We had fewer meetings, younger staff could sit down next to senior people and ask them questions. So we had this casual mentoring that went on. And it was this design shaping patterns of interaction can have profound effects on culture and people's working lives without even using the word culture. And now the other side of it is because you don't need an office or station per employee, you can reduce your real estate footprint significantly by 30 or 40% because on any given day, a certain number of people are at home. So the idea that if you're only going to work at the office one or two days a week, you don't need a private space. That's just a waste of real estate. And the other aspects of ABW that are really quite compelling is they demonstrate employees are more engaged because they have more choice and autonomy. They're more productive because they can work sort of at times on activities that work for them. They stay longer. So employee retention is up. Plus, you can reduce real estate spending by, in some cases, 30 or 40 percent. So, and, you know, if you back up to sort of the balance sheet, real estate and people are generally the two of the largest cost items for big companies. And so not only can you amp your engagement levels, you can also reduce your expenses. So it's what I think will be the logical next step for hybrid working, though in our industry, people just just obsessed over hybrid and they, they're not even fully aware that activity-based working has been a viable alternative now for 35 years. And the challenge is, back to your question about individualized, is ABW is enormous in Asia, in Europe, in Northern Europe, and Australia. But here we face a tough uphill battle because not just CEOs, but senior leaders and upper management, they just refuse to give up their private offices because it's a marker of status. It's like their parking spot. But that will change. And I, th I think that as the return to office debate continues and people try to figure out what their quote unquote hybrid strategies are and stuff like that, that activity-based working is the logical landing spot for this whole debate. It just hasn't been fully accepted 
the way I think it eventually will, because particularly younger generations will demand it. It's interesting and something of a challenge to slot these concepts into much of the existing American culture, which still idolizes the notion of the rugged individual. I'm thinking that discussions around organic management and other forms of collective activity might hold the same minimal appeal as getting a bicycle and cycling around town like they do in Amsterdam. But you've been able to show us through examples like Microsoft and Morningstar, the tomato company here, that this can work. Yeah. Yeah. At the core of cultural evolution in an anthropological sense is trust. Paul Zak at Claremont talks about this beautifully in several HBR articles. And that is the human capacity to trust non-kin, the people we're not related to. That is what's accounted for innovations, technologies, and evolution of human societies. We have propagated a version of human nature, call it freedmanism, economic man, or whatever, which assumes that we come out of the womb as these rugged individuals with no reliance on anybody else. That's just a myth. That's the American story. The sad thing is, is that that view of human nature really runs counter to what science knows about human nature. And so trust is really the cornerstone of all of this. It's trusting employees. It's trusting each other. We really don't trust strangers, never trust a stranger. We have a certain ideological frame here that undermines the potential for the natural company. But the natural company really is one that trusts people. Doug Kirkpatrick, who used to be at Morningstar, says, trust people to do at work, to do things that they do every day at home. And companies that embrace that do better financially. Costco is another example. Jim Senegal, when he was CEO, he spent 200 plus days a year on the floor interacting with line workers employees would say he'd remember details about one of their employees' family members who had been ill previously, and he'd ask about them. He trusted his people. He paid them well. He had empathy for them. So that's another example, like a Satya Nadella, who creates this natural company environment that wins financially. So that was the motivation behind the book, to try to show the financial potential of this approach to managing people. Drew, there's, there's so much great stuff to unpack here, and I think that managers and leaders would do well to make themselves aware of these newer and more community-focused approaches to management that can actually be profitable. So, Drew Jones, uh, where can people find you and get more information about your expertise? Yes. So the book is The Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. And you can find me at just drewjones.co. My company is experient.work and on LinkedIn, I'd love to connect with anybody who's curious about an anthropological approach to managing people. And your LinkedIn address would be? A.M. Jones, PhD. It will be in the show notes along with the links to your site and your book. I must say it has been a great pleasure talking with you today. So thank you so much for joining me today on the Cool Time Life podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. I really, really appreciate it. Once again, Drew's book is The Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation, and you can find Drew at drewjones.co. That is not .com, but .co. Drew, D-R-E-W, Jones, J-O-N-E-S, .co. 
His company is Experient. That's ending with a T. Experient. Dot work. And if you have a comment about this podcast, please feel free to drop me a line through the contact form at cooltimelife.com. A full listing of our past Cool Time Life episodes is available there as well. I update the episodes regularly so that the concepts do not get dated. So check them out and download whatever feels good. If you feel you are getting value from this series, please leave a review and tell just one more person about us or mention us on social media. And if you want, you can support us on Patreon. Contributions from our listeners allow me and my team to spend more time researching and preparing our podcast series. So if that feels fair to you, please visit patreon.com slash Steve Prentice. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.